0: We have passed Pentecost, and I don't know if you know this, but liturgically, we are now in ordinary time. Doesn't that kind of sound like a letdown? We're in ordinary time. You know, there are two great seasons during the Christian uh, liturgical year. One of them is from Advent, which is four Sundays before Christmas, until the end of Epiphany Tide, which is usually around February 2nd. And then we start up again with Lent and go through until Pentecost, which was last Sunday. And everything in between those two great seasons during the year, if you look at a wheel of the liturgical year, it's all ordinary time. So we're back in ordinary time. But uh, ordinary time is anything but ordinary, as we'll find out. And uh, the point of Pentecost, we spent the entire count, the 50-day count, Sunday after Sunday, trying to prepare to find out how we prepare for this breakthrough into understanding life from a different perspective, from a different point of view, called the second baptism, called the second birth, this birth into spirit, this this baptism of fire as opposed to water that the initial baptism is, is taking us to another level. We get on the journey. We are processing the journey after our first baptism, but we're typically processing it still in a physical way. We're still part of our tribes. We still understand life from a physical point of view. But when we can break through, and it may be a gradual breakthrough, not just one big moment, but a gradual becoming of understanding more and more that the unseen world that overlays the seen world is the real reality, is the true reality, and that they comprise this one thing. We can't see that until we break through to a certain extent and start to process things in a different way. Start to actually see life and see the world through God's eyes, through the Father's eyes. When we can do that, it's almost like putting on that special pair of glasses, that polarized glass that lets you see different things that you didn't see before. It's, it's an amazing and fundamental shift in the way that we see our life. Connected and separate At the same time, heaven and earth finally merged in us. The unity of heaven, the oneness of of that experience of God and the individual form and function and diversity that we live through each day. That voice that talks to us in our head that tells us that we are separate from, in competition with everyone and everything else for our survival. To put those two together, to merge them, just as Jesus taught us to pray. We pray at the end of every Sunday, Our Father, in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As in heaven, so on earth. That will, that desire, that delight, that ability to see life as Father sees it, not only in heaven, but on earth, to merge the two, to bring them together. But at the same time, heaven is still heaven, and earth is still earth, They don't mix. Heaven and earth are like oil and water. They're never going to mix. They're going to be seen as separate from a certain point of view. And they present always as separate to us as we live life. They're going to present as in opposition to each other. And they're going to present as if we have to choose one or the other. We can choose heaven, we can choose earth, but there seems to be no place in the middle because they're so separate. They're so mutually exclusive, it seems. But if we do choose, if we choose one or the other, you've heard that being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, if you're so spiritual that you're not in connection with anything that's going on, or if you're so earthly minded, you just can't even see anything else that's going on. As soon as we choose one or the other, we're cooked. As soon as we choose one or the other, we have left the ability to synthesize, to find the unity beneath and beyond. Heaven and earth don't mix on their own but they can mix in us and that's the key last week we talked about the prodigal son or it was a week before and we talked about the fact that this father had two sons one was the prodigal one was the wasteful spendful spontaneous one one was the one who didn't think about consequences but just went for everything with gusto in life and it got him into trouble The other one was a steady son. He was a loyal son. He was a practical son, the one that stayed home and toiled and worked. We need to be both. We talked about Kiva and Kavana in, in Hebrew. It's the rules and the and the structure of prayer, but it's also the heart that brings the prayer alive. The two sons are two sides of the same unity. What we need to be as a completed human being. They don't mix. And at the end of the parable, they don't resolve. The elder brother never goes into the party. He's still mad that his father gave the party to his prodigal son. But what we do see is that the father is the mixture of the two. The father stands between the extremes. And in the father's heart, they mix and become one. It's just like that with heaven and earth. Heaven and earth don't mix. In us, they do. In us, heaven and earth can become one. They can merge into one another in us. And when we break through and begin seeing with the Father's eyes, this is that Pentecost moment, or Pentecost becoming, heaven and earth mix and merge in us as we are able to start to see things from a spiritual point of view overlaid on top of the physical point of view. Now, that doesn't mean that heaven and earth resolve in any way that we would think of that. They blend in us. They blend in our perception of the moment and every moment. And we can finally see the truth that Jesus is talking about. The truth that makes us free is the truth that everything really is one thing. But in this world, as long as we are living and breathing here, they are going to be perceived as separate, except in those moments where they mix in us. It's like that toy that I know I bring up all the time. That little wooden medallion that has uh, an empty birch cage, bird birch cage, empty bird cage painted on one side and a bird on the other. And it has laces that you spin it. And as you're spinning that thing, the bird looks like it's in the cage. It's in that spin, it's in that oscillation, it's in the movement of our lives because spirit's always moving. When we're moving with spirit, it merges in us and becomes one thing to our sight, as we can start to see with the Father's eyes. We can see that oneness, that the Father always sees, that we can only see at these moments of merging. But the idea is that more and more of our moments will be that kind of perception, that kind of merging, until we hit that magic 51% that I always like to talk about, Where more often than not, now you live in that kind of unity. You live in that freedom. You have now changed your mailing address. You live on the light side. You're going to still take trips to the dark side, but you don't live there anymore. That's the whole point. This is what can happen as we move through the Pentecost moment. Now, I just spent the last five or seven minutes talking about this, and it sounds really good on paper, doesn't it? Maybe, but it's still abstract, still theoretical. And as long as we're just talking about it, as long as we're just talking here, that's about as good as it gets. It looks good on paper, and it's abstract, and it's theological. Until we put it into action in some way, until we actually act on it, until we risk something in the action and the movement of our life, on what we say we believe, on what we say we understand, nothing changes. But when we do, everything starts to change. To begin to see life from this perspective infuses everything with new life, infuses everything with meaning and purpose and new color. It's amazing how everything, even if it had started to fade, even if you were experiencing burnout in areas of your life, will become reinvigorated from the inside out as you start to see life in this new way. We we experience this new way of thinking and then and the new way of seeing, and then we try to express it, and now it's back to words again, and the person is just hearing what you're saying. It can't be transferred. It's something each and every one of us needs to experience on our own. And so Tuesday, um, Frank was talking about Tuesday, Our conversations that we are doing still on Zoom right now for a little while longer at least Tuesday, someone asked at the beginning of the session, because we have this policy that anybody at the beginning of our conversations can throw out the holy hand grenade, you know, whatever they want to throw out there and kind of blow up the room, and then we talk about it for the rest of the hour if it has that kind of legs. And this one did, but someone asked, how can we get to really know God? How do we know God? How do we get to see with God's eyes? That's a big old softball right over the plate, right? And it's just like, oh, okay, perfect setup. But that was the question. And then Thursday, I was having coffee with someone, and he asked another question. He asked, How is it that Jesus is the only way to the Father? How does that war exactly work? And what about those people that were born before or died before Jesus was born, you know? How are are they still included in the old? How are they gonna get to the Father if there wasn't a way then in Jesus yet? And all the logical questions that come from a statement like that. And I think these two questions are related. These two questions really are drawing us into the same place. How can we know God? Because knowing God can't be separated from the way to God. We can't just think about it. We can't just pray about it. We can't just abstractly create concepts about it. Knowing God can't be separated from the way to God. And the Hebrew language itself lays this out, because to know in Hebrew, yada, originally was the word for hand, but to the Hebrew mind, to know something is to have experience with it, to have intimate experience with it. The way the journey craftsman knows his or her tools, can feel them in his or her hands when they're not there. That kind of intimacy. The way a lover knows the feel of their beloved's face in their hands. That kind of knowing. That's what yada means. And when the scriptures talk about knowing God. They don't mean understanding God. They don't mean having a correct theology about God. They mean that you have intimate experience with God. Or you don't know him at all. This way of Jesus, this way that Jesus is talking about, is a way of experiencing God over and over and intimately seeing God in this life. In other words, merging heaven and earth finding out who this God is in a really personal way. I think I've said in here before, you don't really know someone until their toothbrush is hanging next to yours, right? Well, this is in essence what we're doing. We're going to be moving in with God. We're going to experience him day by day in all those intimate and seemingly insignificant moments, not just the one that we put up on the calendar as the big moments that we're going to have with God. It's day in, day out experiencing God. This is Jesus' way. This way of experiencing everything with God. And Jesus is saying that my life, the way that I've lived my life, the way that I've lived my life with you is the shape of this journey. This is what it looks like. If you follow this shape, if you do what I do, you can get to the Father. And by the way, there is no other way to get to the Father but this way taking the shape of this journey, finding that experience that changes everything. This way of Jesus is intensely human. It's intensely physical, because here's another thing, you can't separate the physical from the spiritual as long as we are here breathing as human beings. Often we'd like to think that we can separate our spirituality from our physicality. And in fact, that's what the Western church has taught for centuries, that to become more spiritual, you become less physical, that you move away from the things of the world. But the Jews understood understood it just opposite to that. You became more spiritual as you immersed in the world. And truthfully, there is no way for us to practice our spirituality except through our physicality as long as we're physical beings. How else are we going to do it exactly? Nothing else is going to make any sense whatsoever. So what we're trying to do here is take the abstract into the concrete. Not just talk about this theoretically and conceptually, but what are the ways of engaging this way of Jesus that will help us to know the Father, to actually be able to see life and the world the universe with his eyes. I'm gonna look at five ways this morning that I think scripture outlines for us and see if that helps. And you've got some inserts there, hopefully you all have one of them that you can take a look at, may help you as, uh, as we go through them to actually have a visual aid there. But let's start. And let's start with that passage that was asked last Thursday of me. First one, John 14, starting at verse six. This is Jesus at the Last Supper talking to Thomas, good old Thomas, doubting Thomas, right? He's going away, everybody's freaking out, and Thomas says, well, just Jesus, just show us the way so we know how to get there, and and we'll be okay. We won't be freaking out anymore. And you can almost see Jesus just smacking his forehead, and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. See, even then, the disciples didn't understand who Jesus was. They didn't understand what he was talking about. They misunderstood because they were still thinking physically. They hadn't gone through this process of being able to see with spiritual eyes. Jesus was constantly, through metaphor and parable and story, trying to get them to break through. Just like Nicodemus, trying to get him to break through to understand there's a whole different way to process these things. But they were here in their tribal space. They were here still jockeying for position. They didn't get it. But Jesus is trying to say, look at me. Look at me. Look at my life. Look at the way I live. If you want to see the Father, if you want to understand what this is all about, you need to look at me really look at me. And you have to see the traits that are really there. Not just the traits that we imagine about Jesus and not just the traits they imagined even walking with them physically for the years that they did. But when you really look at Jesus, what do you see? You see someone who's working in the micro. You see someone who's working person by person and heart by heart. He's not talking about policy here. He's not talking about theology here or doctrine He's trying to turn individual heart lights on. He's working in that close quarters because without that kind of personal and intimate experience, you cannot know what the Father is all about. When he called him Abba, Daddy, actually, what the little kids call their daddies, he was trying to get across the kind of intimacy that we can have when we take God just from being the king of the universe, which is a typical way of Jews to express their awe and and their, their fidelity to God, but merge that with Abba. He's both, and he's both in our experience. Jesus is intensely micro. Jesus is borderless. He's not tribal. He crosses all sorts of boundaries and barriers and borders everywhere he goes because he loves indiscriminately. He had a mission, it was to his people, But in doing that mission, he found opportunities when people came to him, and he loved them all. He was able to love the enemy, those outside his own tribe, in equal measure. He was borderless. He was vulnerable. He let people see who he really was. He said what he believed, even when he knew it was going to cause trouble for himself, and eventually got him killed. He was completely humble. Here is a man who was... Woke, shall we say, in the best use of that word. Awakened, enlightened, could see what was really there. And yet he didn't count himself any more or any less than anyone else. Always at the pure level. Unassuming. Never arrogant. Never demanding. A gentleman. Let people go at their own pace. I'm here when you need me. You figure it out. But here is the principles that will get you there. He was commonsensical. <laughs> he makes perfect common sense once you get him back into his original language. Practical. Everything was concrete, taking us where we need to go. Transparent. He was exactly who he was to everyone he met, full integrity. And above all, he was willing to be hurt. And when he was hurt, he was willing to be vulnerably hurtable again and again and again, and ultimately at the cross to say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Never stopping the process of being vulnerable and hurtable because he was still being loving at the same time. Look at me, he's saying. Look at who I really am. If you want to know the way, I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life. There is no other way to get to the Father but this way. But look what it is. It's so different than your thinking. Can you make that change? Can you make that shift? Can you let go of everything that you're carrying around that you think is what this is? Look at me. At John 13, starting in verse 34, I give you a new commandment, he's still at the Last Supper here, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's love that defines us. He says, look at me, look at love. Love defines us, not theology, not doctrine. We got that all back to front. Love breaks through the barriers. Love breaks through the borders. Love transcends tribe and tribal consciousness and all the fear that goes with building our walls thick and our armies dense. It transcends tribe and any category that we can imagine putting ourselves and others into. Love breaks through, dissolves those walls. Love puts us squarely on the threshold where heaven and earth meet. It puts us in that liminal space that we've been talking about. It puts us in that betweenness, between things where we can see clearly We have the vantage where we can see this and that. And even though we may have our own passionate tribe, we have our own convictions, it allows us still to see the truth outside of our camp and to be able to criticize our own camp, to be in that space that allows heaven and earth to mix in us. Love is the medium, if you will, in which heaven and earth mix in us. But without love, nothing further takes place. So he's saying, look at love. Let love define you. At John 4. I'm sorry, that should be John 14. I'm just making mistakes all over today, aren't I? John 14, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. I'm sorry, this is First John. Not John. First John 4. I was... Uh, right, and I thought I was wrong, so that was my mistake. Okay, First John 4, starting verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, you substitute no for intimate experience. If you don't love, you have no intimate experience with God. The intimate experience of God is the experience of love because God is love. This is what John is telling us. Skip to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit See how we are the mixing point? If we are loving, God is in us. God is abiding in us. Love is perfected in us. Heaven and earth are mixed in us, is what John is saying. Skipping to verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Do you hear the mixing of heaven and earth again? We in this world are the same as God when we are in love, when we are loving, when we have mixed the attributes and the characteristics of heaven and earth in ourselves. As he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. He said, look at each other. Look at each other. Loving God can't be separated from loving each other. There's no way for that to happen. And if you really think about it, we don't love God directly. How is that possible? We love God by loving each other. That's how we know we love God, if we're loving each other. And if we're not doing that, we don't know anything. We love God by loving each other, and this is the essence of Jesus' way. If we can't see God in each other, then we won't see God at all. This is a fundamental thing that we have to get. We can spend so much time in prayer, in worship, in these abstract ways and think that we're loving God, but what are we doing with each other? Are we letting those relationships atrophy? Are we letting relationships go? If we're going to err to one side or another, err to each other. Because you get, it's a twofer. You get both. Now the times of worship and prayer and the times that we can just be in that space with God are wonderful because they calm us, they center us, they balance us. But what they're absolutely really doing is empowering us to be able to take our show back on the road. To be able to get back out into the streets of our lives and love each other which is the only way that we will ever know that we love God. And when our love extends beyond our own tribe and we are actually loving the enemy, the one that we don't understand, the one who is not like us, the one that we don't agree with, then we know that we have broken through into a whole different vista, a whole different place where heaven and earth are beginning to merge in us as we see the way that God loves Matthew 6, starting at verse 26. This is Jesus in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the birds of the air, he says. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Skipping to verse 28. Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, they do not spin, yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you?" You say, now, look at nature. You want to see your father's face? Look at nature. See all of nature as a part of us. See us as part of nature, not above nature, not standing outside nature. We in this culture, with this technology, imagine that we somehow stand outside nature, that we're immune somehow to what nature does. It's only in the extreme times, like a tornado or a hurricane, that we remember, oh, yeah, nature. Yeah, I've got to kind of put that into my calculations here. But otherwise, we just move from one air-conditioned container to another pretty much on rubber-soled shoes that isolate us and insulate us from any of the electric currents of the earth itself. And that's what we do. Can we look back at nature and remember that we're part of this thing, this whole system? We're dependent on this thing, this whole system. Look at nature, he's saying. Look at the way it works. Look at these animals. Look what's happening here. See how you're a part of that flow, a part of that rhythm. Look how nature harmonizes. Look how it connects to each other. Look how precisely tuned it is. How if just one thing were off by this much, everything collapses. But it stays together somehow. See all that. See how nature is the analog of your place with the Father. See how nature is the mirror of the relationship that you have with your Father. This argument that Jesus is using is a, is a classic rabbinical argument called Homer, which literally means light and heavy. If God is gonna feed the birds, if God is going to clothe the lilies of the field, how much more? If it's true in the light instance, how much more is it true in the heavy instance? He uses this all the time to try to get something across. Look at nature, look at the way it works. How much more is your Father caring for you, harmonized in you, caring for you, precisely tuned in you, if you can see it out there? Can you see the connection? Can you see how all of this comes together? Nature shows us this order, this care, this attention that we share with our Father in heaven. It eludes us in our minds because our minds only see separation. But when we step away from that and move in, another vision, another vantage presents, which leads us right into the last one. If we're going to look at the moment, I think there's no better way to do that than through the teachings and the life of Brother Lawrence. If you're not familiar with Brother Lawrence, I wholly encourage you to get the little teeny book called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a a poor peasant who fought in the 30 Years' War in France in the 16th century, and he had a vision on the battlefield that caused him to want to join the Carmelite order after the war was over. And he did. And when he got there, he had um, no place to be in the, in the abbey except in the kitchen. They put him in the kitchen because there was really nothing else that they could do with him. He was unlearned and, and unlettered and all of that. And he was resentful at first. He didn't want to be in the kitchen. Um, but something happened over the years as he stayed there. He realized that God's presence was just as intense in the kitchen. And eventually it was more intense in the kitchen because that's where he had purpose. That's where he had meaning. That's where he was serving all of his brothers. He has the most wonderful quotes. I'm going to read a couple. In fact, the first two are in your handout, so take a look there. Nor is it needful that we should have great things to do, he said. We can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for love of him, and that done, if there is nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself in worship before him who has given me grace to work Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. It's enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. And this one, which I think is central, and I love this one. Men invent, men and women invent, means and methods of coming at God's love. They learn rules and set up devices to remind them of that love. And it seems like a world of trouble to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. Yet it might be so simple. Is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly for the love of him? You see where he's going with this? We try to make this complicated. We try to make this pious. We try to make this religious. And all we have to do is what we normally do. Look what he says here. Our sanctification does not depend upon our changing our works. But upon doing that for God's sake which commonly we do for our own. Expand the purpose, expand the mission, doing the same thing, but seeing the task within the task, seeing the thing that stands behind. There is not in the world a kind of more sweet and delightful thing than that of a continual walk with God. Those only can comprehend it who practice and experience it. We can't just think about it. We can't just pray for it and then a little bit from from my book, just about Brother Lawrence, to see if we can bring this home. Brother Lawrence left a trail of breadcrumbs leading directly to the realization that we enter the presence of God in no other way than by simply becoming present ourselves to everything and everyone around us. There's never been any other way. This is the genius of Brother Lawrence's breadcrumbs, that there is never a moment we need to be outside or unaware of the presence of God that we can enter God's presence at will, that any time, any place, we can see the Shekinah, God's tangible presence for the Hebrews, the pillar of fire by night and of cloud by day, that we can get to the point where the strategies we use to employ, the specific times of prayer and worship, become themselves the distractions, the breaks between living our lives as the uninterrupted experience of God. When we turn off the cell phone and really enter into a conversation with a friend, when we push away from our work and look into our child's eyes or the eyes of a coworker and really see them, hear them, help them, when we pull off the road on the way home to watch the last rays of the sun disappear over the horizon, drop our briefcase or purse at the door and take the nearest face in our hands and kiss it, when we picture the people who will benefit from whatever work we do, and then do that work better, the best we can, with their faces to guide us. When we engage everything and everyone as if God were intimately present, we are finally beginning to know the truth that will make us free. Because the truth is, God is, and God always was, and God always will be present, as present as we can stand him to be. Look at the moment. Look at the moment. If you can't see God in all the moments, if you can't see each moment as a reflection of God's face, you're missing the entire point of kingdom. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. On Tuesday night, as we talked longer through that initial question of how do we get to know God and how can we see his face, stories started to emerge, and great stories. One uh, woman talked about going to her hairdresser, and she loves her hairdresser and loves how she does her color, and so she didn't want to mess up her relationship with this hairdresser, but the hairdresser was going into a political rant while she was sitting in the chair, and her blood was starting to boil as this woman went on and on and on. And then all of a sudden she realized, this woman feels exactly the way I did four years ago. And as soon as she made that connection, as soon as she saw this woman as a reflection of herself, saw her as a connection of her own broken humanity... All of that resentment, all of that stress just faded away. And she did a great job on her hair, too. But it took that connection point. It took that realization. Oh, yeah, this is the kind of stuff I was saying. This is what I was feeling at that moment. Another woman who is an advocate for the homeless You know, she does the flyers and and does the online stuff and all the different things and raises money and does whatever she can for the homeless. But she said the most important thing she does is just go to the park and sit on a bench and just listen. She said these people usually have no one to just talk to, no one that actually listens to them. You know, it wasn't about actually finding out what they need. She says sometimes that comes out in conversation, and sometimes there's something that I can give or do. But mostly, it's just listening. It's just connecting. It's just being part of their life, hearing their story, and letting it do whatever it does in me. Another woman was talking about (laughs) her cats. She actually takes in rescue cats, and usually kittens, and she weans them and gets them ready to be adopted by someone else. So sometimes she can have six or seven cats in her home, kittens in her home. And she was talking about how everyone is completely different, you know? They're kittens. But each one, as she is with them for a few days or weeks, she sees their different personalities. She sees their different needs and desires. She sees different ways that she needs to deal with them. Sometimes they need to be fed differently, you know, if they're not completely weaned. And she said that gave her an insight into her own kids, how her kids are so different, how she needs to treat them differently, how she needs to treat everyone differently, how she needs to spend enough time with people to see that there are differences and seeing how she can be close to and connect with each one of them because she can't do that if she brings in a one-size-fits-all blanket-covering sort of rule of how she's going to deal with people. But her cats are showing her how she can do that, how she can really see people. Another woman is a photographer, you know, a hobbyist, a photographer. But she takes pictures everywhere she goes. She sends her pictures to me, so I get to see them. And sometimes a picture is just of a sidewalk. But she loved the texture of the sidewalk. Sometimes it's a picture of a planter, but it's not even the plants. It's the way that the rocks and the bark and the leaves all just kind of created a pattern. And then there's pictures of this and that. But she sees things that we typically just walk right past, and it connects with her. And she sees that there's something beautiful there, and she wants to capture it. She's really seeing what is there, seeing things in the seemingly insignificant details that speak to her. There was a man who said, at the end, he asked for prayer for someone that he said he hardly knows. He just met this person. But... This man was disabled, and his need was so great that it just touched him so deeply. And he was asking for prayer for him, but he was also going to help the man. He was going to do what he could to get him to transition, to get where he needed to go. And he said, it's really strange. He goes, I don't even really know this guy, but I feel so strongly that I need to be there and help in any way that I can. You see how each one of these stories is dealing with each one of these ways. Jesus says, look at me. Look at me. Look at the way I live. Look at love. Look at each other. Look at nature. Look at the moment. And here are these people just in our little group who are experiencing this. You don't need to understand this. Maybe it helps if you do because you can set a nice paradigm, you can set a way forward, but you don't need to understand it intellectually. You need to experience it and live it. That makes all the difference in the world. The guy that I was having coffee with who asked about the way and the truth and the life, we met at my favorite little coffee place down on the other side of the tracks in San Juan. feels like you're out somewhere in nature, you know, in the rural area when you're there on Los Rios. And afterwards I was walking back to my car and I just got overwhelmed with this sense of gratitude. I got to do that. I got to sit with this guy for an hour plus and just talk about the things that mean the most to me and to him in this beautiful place with a great cup of coffee, you know, with the right temperature and broken clouds in the sky. And I just was overwhelmed. It's like, yeah, I get to do this today. And then I thought about it and it went away. (laughs) That's what happens. But to just realize you know this moment is special just because i'm here just because i was present to it changes everything and this is how it works this is how it works this is how we get to know god intimately experientially see the world and see life as god sees it it doesn't happen out there someplace It doesn't happen in our minds someplace. It happens in us, deeply in us. If you want to think of it this way, we are God's palette. The colors get mixed in us. We're where all of that happens, not anywhere else. Because if it doesn't happen in us, it doesn't happen at all. And we see the horrors of what happens in our choices and in life when we don't allow the mixing of colors. We don't allow the merging of heaven and earth to occur in us. We see what happens in our own lives and we see it across the headlines. But when it does, when we get there, even just for a moment, and the colors mix and we bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven, then we become God's hands and feet, right here, right now. We become a life that someone can look at, and see God's face in us. As we begin to know God, how He chooses, how He loves, and to begin to see our lives as He sees them, right here, deeply physical, deeply human, and deeply now. This is how it works. This is what Jesus is saying. If you can move toward and eventually break through that Pentecost moment, and begin to see life with the Father's eyes, everything changes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us back to ordinary time, our ordinary lives, the moments that we see as insignificant, the textures that we usually just blow by, Help us to see them with new significance. Help us to see you in everything as we connect with everything in our moments and in our lives. Help us to see that there is no wasted time here, that every moment lived with presence is a step closer to you and closer to everything that we are trying to do here in this life, which is simply to see as you see. Thank you, Father, for the gifts that you've given us, for these moments that are just so amazing when we really see them. Thank you for the people in our lives that love us, that are present to us, that listen to us, help us to see you in them and to become that person for someone else. Father, thank you for your love and your constancy. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.